So this is in the beginning. God, Elohim, says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So the very first thing that we notice here is that God makes us in his image, in his likeness. There's some similarity between the creation and the creator. But the first thing that's brought out as a similarity is the dominion. Right? God has dominion over all things, and as a part of that dominion, he imparts it to us over the earth specifically. So we don't have dominion over all things, but we have dominion over the earth and over the fowl of the air and the cattle and over all the earth and creepy, every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. So everything that God is, we are in microscopic, a microscopic version of it, right? We don't have the totality. Obviously, God is uh, myster- mysterious. Everything that we are not, God is. So there's lots of things that we are not. But God is imparting like a slice of it, a slice of his nature into man. And this is a theme throughout the entire Bible. In the next chapter, chapter 2, it happens again, where God again does this. It, it's taking a slice of a whole and making it into something different, and but something similar. And we'll see this right here with making the making of woman. So God... Um, He sees that man is alone and it's not good for man to be alone. And so God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her under the man. So again, we have this pattern of taking a slice of a thing and making another thing out of it. And there's a similarity, a through line there that connects all all of humanity to God. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, so the question, of course, is like, well, how do we, can we return there? Or is there a way to get back to this pre-fall condition of being either one with or close to God? And that's what the entire Bible is about. And and, and what do we know about Christ? Christ is what? The express image of his person. The express image of his person. Express meaning a thing that's expelled, put out into the world. X meaning out, press meaning pushed into the world. So Christ is the express image of God, the Father, in the world. And so we have an example. And that's where the Bible ends, is the whole Bible points to God. But we've got stories all over that are illustrating this point. So God creates man. Out of man, he creates woman. This image of God is throughout the lineage of man. I want to turn to Jeremiah. Because I think there's a, a probably the most famous portion of scripture from Jeremiah illustrates this point perfectly. Um, It's a point, I think that we all see God in ourselves, and we see ourselves in God in different ways, because we're different people, right? So I think for typical man, you're a craftsperson, you're working, you're laboring, trying to provide. It's your whole role. And this chapter 18 of Jeremiah really drives this point home. So the word comes to Jeremiah, who's a prophet, and Jeremiah suffered all these, all these trials and travails, and, and is really one of the most interesting characters in the Old Testament. And the word comes to Jeremiah, and, and, and the Lord wants to drive home a point. So he says, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. So he, he hears a command. He's commanded to do a thing. He's commanded to go down to the potter's house. And I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of the clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again, another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. 
So this is an illustration of the sovereignty of the Lord over all creation. But he's illustrating the point through a man, through a person. So I think a lot of the times we're told... How do I put this? We get this image of the potter at, at his craft, at his work, and it's meant to illustrate a point about God. We see that all over the place. We receive lessons from God through images in the natural world, right? Um, I think it's Psalm 19 that says, you know, the firmament and the heavens declare his glory, right? There's a lesson to be learned just from the image of the thing, right? So here we have an image of the thing, the creator, the craftsperson making a thing and getting to decide whether or not whether or not it's good or not good. God is the decider. God is the creator. He's the craftsperson at the wheel and he's deciding what's good and not good. And most importantly here is the vessel he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So the the potter is the cause of the marring, and but the potter is also the cause of turning the vessel, making it good to the potter, right? So this is really, really important. And actually, the translations defer a little bit here, but the word is, he says, he made it again another vessel. So he takes the original vessel of clay that he had marred, and he makes it again. He turns it like you would repent from or turn away from your sin and he makes it into something good. And this is what God does. God makes us, we use free will to fail. And then God says, well, I want you to be something better. So he, he, in the potter is called throwing clay. He throws us into a better situation. And actually that's really amazing because Jeremiah is the, the name. Jeremiah means like thrown from God or thrown to God. So given by God. Um, so this story illustrates just how the creator is responsible for goodness or not goodness. Now, I think that only really uh, resonates with some people who are like creative types who are building. I think that there's another story that resonates with people who are more um, not necessarily creating, but but like nurturing, right? So, so someone who's more focused on uh, the sort of emotional state of someone... It, I'm thinking of specifically the woman at the well, right? We all know the woman at the well. She goes to get water. Christ says, you know, give me some water. And, and she does. And then, you know, he tells her, you know, you have uh, water to drink here. But if you had the you know, everlasting water, we would be, you, you would never need to drink again. But she's not a Jew and she's not uh, like of his tribe. So this, this connection that he's making to this woman is based solely on her daughtership of God, right? He's not, she's not a Jew, so he has no uh, religious affiliation or anything like that with her. It's just her being made in the image of God that matters. And so, and, and why is this important? Why is it, why is it obeisance? Why is it uh, righteous? Why is it good? Why is it an image that we can learn from? It's an image that we can learn from because the two greatest commandments are what? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor like you love yourself. So those are a couple of images that sort of talk about the image of God being in someone else and, and being able to recognize it and being able to see it. Whether they're a craftsperson or whether they're just a helper. One of the best New Testament verses that illustrates this point is a, a favorite verse. I think we've probably touched on it a few times, which is in chapter 17 of John. 
And this is an elaboration of the whole idea that we're talking about here. And he says, as this is Christ speaking, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world for their sakes. I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou father art in me and I in thee that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So, again, let's ask the question. The question is, God makes us in his image. What are the things that we can see in ourselves that are that image of God? And what are the things that we can see in God that are, that are ref- an, an image of ourselves, right? Like, what is the, the, the microcosm within us that is expressed within God? Because obviously there's a lot within man that is not of God. Our sin, our uh, depravity, our ignorance, these are things that, only, that man has that God does not have, right? They're actually lack, they're a lack of things, right? Like, sin is a lack of proper direction. Ignorance is a lack of knowledge. Depravity is a lack of moral righteousness. So, we have these things, but what are the things excluded from all that that God has? Well, he's saying here that the objective, that his objective is that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So let's, they all may be one, the church may all be one in one harmonious accord, right? Like the biggest problem we have in Christianity today is the schisms with all the denominations and just the the fighting about Protestantism, Catholicism, Baptism, whatever. What God wants for us is to be one church, to be united. It says right here, they all may be one as thou, the Father, art in me. So this is, this is a comparison. He's saying the church should be one, one harmonious body of people in one fine accord, just like, Father, you art in me, and I in thee. So there's a relationship between the Father and the Son that the church is meant to emulate. And it's oneness, it's harmoniousness, it's accord, it's, it's being aligned in the same direction, right? And so that's the way the church is meant to be. The way the Father and the Son are in one accord, the church is meant to be in one accord. And I in thee, that they also, and this is for a purpose, that they also may be one in us. So with the church being harmonious in one accord brings into harmony God, the Son, and the Father with the church. So if we can be harmonious together, we can also be harmonious with God. This is, you know, he says, where two or more gathered, I will be there with them, right? So to be harmonious, to be one with one another, to be one with God, this is the objective. So, let's just recap a couple things. First is, in Genesis, we know we're made perfect, we're made with God, walking with God. We fall. We are separated from God. This is illustrated really well in the Old Testament with the exile in Egypt of the Jews. Even after they're exiled, once they're delivered from from slavery and, and bondage to the Egyptians, they are then out in the wilderness of sin because of their... The whole point of that illustration is that even after you are saved from bondage to sin, you still return to it, right? The Jews, even in the wilderness, even after escaping from the bondage to Egypt, fall into the wilderness of sin. And they're idolatrous and wicked and unbelieving. And that's how we begin. 
The Bible is a story of people being lifted out of that. So you've got Jonah, he falls into the belly of the whale, he comes out, he does his job, and then he, he like laments that he did his job. Uh, you've got Jeremiah reflecting on the potter and how the potter decides. Uh, Jeremiah was also called, all the prophets, not all the prophets, but the prophets are generally called uh, out of some uh, obscurity. There's usually some interesting circumstances around their birth, and they're called. Uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah both called with like a, a burning coal to the lips. So they're called to prophecy, but they're called out of darkness, just like the Jews are called out of Egypt. And then, of course, the, the, the best example, the ultimate example, the primary, like the prototypical typical example here. Is Jesus. It's always Jesus. Jesus is always the, uh, the first and last uh, objective version of events, right? So how, does, how is Jesus um, separated from God? Well, there's a couple sort of examples of this. And he's not separated from God in the literal sense. Jesus is God. Uh, but in his man nature, he experiences things that we can see are a reflection of our own separation from God. And so... Uh, the best example in Mark, you've got Jesus baptized. And when he's baptized by Paul, there comes a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Coming out of the water, there comes a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So this is in chapter 1 of Mark, and this is the very beginning of the, the Gospel of Mark. And the, the idea here is that this particular moment, Christ is in perfect accord with the Father. He's obeying the Father's will for him to get baptized. And as he comes out of the water, he, the dove comes down upon him and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is Christ. This is an image of Christ like walking in the garden with God, right? But then immediately, straight away, the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. So what is the wilderness? The wilderness is a it represents the wilderness of sin. It represents the, the place where Christ is tempted. That is, I think, what we're supposed to reflect on as being, this is the universal human experience of temptation and being separated from God by sin. Now, Christ obviously never sins, so he overcomes. But, but at the end of the story, we get another reflection of this pattern of being driven away from God and being brought back. And, of course, this is in the Passion and the Crucifixion. So we just read from John chapter 17. Shortly after that point, uh, Christ is crucified. And you've got the famous words, it is finished, and he passes away. He gives up the ghost. In the most brutal, um, tragic, painful possible way, uh, he asks, you know, my God, why have you forsaken me? He asks in the Garden of Gethsemane, can you take this away from me? And so this is something we all go through, right? We all go through what we experience is persecution, what we experience is oppression. Uh, you know, it, it says that it's a blessing to be martyred for his, for his name's sake. It's a blessing to suffer for his name's sake. Uh, that's what Christ is doing. He's suffering for the sake of God. Um, he's suffering th- through this. Uh, as the son of God, but in separation from like the whole point is that in order for our sins to be redeemed, Christ has to be separated from God and, and experience the punishment that we deserve. So just like the Jews going out into the wilderness, just like the Jews in bondage, just like, uh, 
Jonah in the belly of the whale. Christ experiences this darkness, this period of being, you know, in the wilderness, literally in the beginning of his ministry, but then in the uh, in the passion, this sort of uh, cosmological separation from God. And so it's extremely dark in front of his mother being crucified. I mean, just the absolute pain of it all. I, we, we can't, we can hardly imagine, but the point is that we can imagine, right? Like the whole, the whole re, it says in Hebrews, why did he do it? He does, he partakes in the flesh and the blood so that we can be in harmonious accord with him so that, so that we have an example But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is not we are in darkness, we are in sin, we are unable to connect with God. We come here every Sunday to get aligned, to be put into harmony with one another and with God. And how does this work? Well, it works the exact same way as it did when Christ was resurrected from the tomb. So Mary... Mary Magdalene goes, and she goes to the tomb. And this is now in chapter 20 of, of John. And so Mary stands without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she weeps, she stoops down and looks into the sepulcher. And she sees two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Wow. So she's standing at the tomb, and she has a divine revelation of two angels. I mean, just imagine the most sort of positively traumatic thing that you've ever experienced in your life, the most miraculously beautiful thing you've ever experienced in your life. And that is what Mary is experiencing right now, the the witness of an actual resurrection of our living Savior. He sees two, she sees two angels in white, sitting one at the head, one at the feet. And they say, woman, why weepest thou? Why are you crying? What are you sad for? Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. What is that? That's separation. That's a detachment from. That's, that's the ignorance of the image of God living in her. The fact is that there, there's no power on earth that could take Christ away, right? There's no power in the universe except for Christ himself, and he chooses not to do that. God wants to be close to you. That's why he chooses you. That's why grace exists. The whole point of grace is that we don't deserve it, but we get it because God wills it. And so she thinks that she's separated from God. She's saying, she's saying, they've taken my Lord away. The Lord is gone from me. I am alone. I know not where they have laid him. And I'm ignorant. I don't know how to find him. And when she had thus said it, it's amazing. It happens immediately in an instant. She says this, and then she turns herself back, like the potter turning the... the, the it, it's... It's being turned away from. It's repenting from. She repents from this notion. And when she turns herself back, she sees Jesus. She sees Jesus. So when we are in the darkness, when we are separated from God, when we uh, are discouraged or you know, we don't know what to do next, it's in that moment that Christ is right behind you. And you just need to turn around and you'll see him. You're ignorant of it. We're ignorant of his proximity to us. Right? We're ignorant of the image of God living within us. It's hard to understand. Like, how do I, like, when you are most depressed, when you are most incapable of controlling your sin or, or, or not sinning, 
it, it feels like you are detached from God. It feels like, what is the prayer that we almost all ask? God, why me? Like, wh- why me? Why are you doing this to me? It's out of ignorance. It's out of ignorance that j- if you just turn away from your sin and repent, he'll be right behind you. He's right there. He's right behind you. And this idea of being behind, right? Christ. Christ is behind us because we're looking the wrong way. You know who's behind Christ? Satan. Get behind me, Satan. He says, when Peter says, you know, don't go get crucified. He says, get behind me, Satan. Because Christ is looking in the right direction. Christ is looking in the right direction, so Satan's behind him. We're looking in the wrong direction. Christ is behind us. We need to turn around. And we need to see that Christ is right there and he's waiting for us. And he says, woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? We seek Christ. That's who we seek. That's who she sought. She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And he says to her, Mary. And she turns herself and she recognizes and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say master. And that's the story is that we're not, we're not, the recognizance of Christ, of Christ in us isn't our own work. It's Christ saying, Mary, it's Christ saying, Stephen, it's Christ saying, Michael. And then we recognize and we're, we're called out of the darkness and we are delivered into, there is a land of golden strand, right? So, I mean, we started talking about the Imago Dei. We're talking about the image of God within us. We're made in the image of God. It is inherently who we are at our nature, every single one of us. We are born out of divine speaking. I mean, it says that he speaks things into existence. I think that he might sing things into existence, right? That there's an order to it and a marvelousness to it that only God could produce. And, 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 and it's musical and it's a beautiful thing. And so we're made out of the image of God. It exists within us. The whole entire point of everything that we do here is just turning us around, redirecting us in the right direction we're supposed to be, looking at Christ and the recognizance, the recognition that Christ is the object of our desires. He is the aim. He's what, and if we all have that aim, if he speaks to each one of us individually, we're all looking in the same direction. We are in one harmonious accord as the church, which means what? That we are in one harmonious accord with God. The Imago Dei is one of the most sort of discussed and philosophized about concepts in the Bible, and it's a, it's a big topic, and so I don't have time to lay it all out here, but I think that the, the thing that I want you to go home with is just that if you're feeling separated from God, if you're feeling like you're in the darkness, if you're feeling like you're going through the wilderness, if you're feeling tempted, it's not a matter of willing yourself out. There's no thing that you can do. It's just a matter of looking the other way. God is right behind you. He's right there. And he's calling you and he's saying your name. And as soon as you recognize it, you're back in his presence. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gospel. Lord, we have so much to be grateful for this tremendous, tremendous work um, that you've provided us with for our edification, Lord, for our, for our encouragement, Lord. We are, we are blessed by it, Lord. And we ask that you would open it, you, you, would, you would continue to pour into us, Lord, that we would learn from it, that we would have ears to hear, Lord, that we would be turned away from our sin, that we'd be turned away from 
the, the marred version of ourselves that we've become, that we would be separated not from you, but from our sin, Lord, and that we would be able to just turn around and see you right behind us, Lord, that you've been with us the whole time, that you've been calling us the whole time, Lord, that, that, that our names are on your tongue, Lord, and that we just need to hear it and just need to recognize it. And Lord, we'll be encouraged and be present with you again. And we will know that, that we are your children in whom you are well pleased, Lord. And Lord, we just want to thank you for Jesus Christ, Lord. He is a perfect, perfect example, Lord. The ultimate example of moral righteousness, of, of, what, um, of what you intend for your creation here below, Lord. And we just ask that that, that ex- example would be seared into into us, Lord, that we would be conformed to his image, Lord. As you made us in, in your image, Lord, conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. That is what we pray for, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Appreciate your prayers for just a few minutes. Uh, interestingly, uh, parents cause children to turn uh, I remember my father was very generous with the rod and the application of that would cause me to turn or should. Um, God's word should cause us to turn when we look at God's word and we see that there's areas in our life that we've missed the mark or that we're missing the mark. We should pray that God's word would cause us to turn But God himself turns us. Um, He seeks us. He knows where we are. Um, Lamentations chapter 5. Jeremiah says, Turn us unto thee, O Lord. The Lord is the one when we're not able to turn, that he turns us. He says, Turn us unto thee, O Lord. And when the Lord does it, he's effective 100% of the time. He doesn't try anything. He doesn't wish for anything. He doesn't hope for anything. But he says, turn us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. And he says, renew our days as of old. And that's what we all want is those times that we remember in times past that we've experienced the Lord's blessing, that we want to experience that one more time. Appreciate some the good points, Brother Danny, brought forth. Desire and interest in your prayers. Joel chapter 2. Joel and Hosea both are the prophets are talking about the judgment of God upon the land. I preached out of this 28 years ago when I first came to Mount Carmel. And felt that it was descriptive of uh, the churches. We had just visited churches up in New Jersey and uh, Hopewell and Southampton and places like that where they were desolate, where at one time there had been prosperous church services. And I believe that even though this can be very applicable to churches, and certainly it is. It can also be applicable to families. It can also be applicable to the country in which we live in. And you can look at it yourself 
I encourage you to go through and read all of Joel and all of Hosea, two short little books. But it talks about it talks about the judgment of God upon the land. And it starts out in Joel chapter 2. He says to the prophet, he says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Now, where is that? That's in the church. That's in the Lord's house. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion. And then he says something else right here. He says, sound an alarm. I don't know about you, but I really don't like alarms. Anybody here like alarm clocks? I kind of expect some of you are the same camp that I am. You really don't care for alarms. When I was in in college about 100 years ago, I had an old Big Ben alarm clock. And in order for it to wake me up, and it was loud and and, and obnoxious, I would set it in one of my grandmother's uh, metal baking pans. And so when it would start shaking and making all kinds of noise, it was amplified by being in this baking pan. And that's what I use to get up. I don't like alarms at, at all. I don't really like sounding the alarm. But I believe that when we look at the circumstances around us, that we have to wonder, is what's going on around us the result? Now, I've talked to a variety of folks and folks are welcome to their opinion about it. Some say the current uh, pandemic is the result of the judgment of God and uh, uh, the result of God judging the land. Others say, uh, I don't think that it is. Well, let's look at what the condition was right here. He says, preacher, you're to go out and you're to blow the trumpet. You're to go out and you're to sound the alarm. And what is the purpose of the alarm? Brother Danny brought about many times in uh, some of the points that he was making, the turning that needs to come forth. And oftentimes, when God is addressing us with his judgment, whether it's in our churches, whether it's in our families, whether it's in our land, it's for the purpose of bringing about a change. Can I tell you that God is 100% effective all the time? I don't believe in a God and I don't worship a God that is up there wringing his hands, hoping that I'll do something. The song Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. Great song by and large. But I want to tell you, when our God speaks, it's done. He's not pleading. He's not begging. God is effective 100% of the time. And he knows exactly what it takes for each and every one of us to get our attention. Maybe different for me than what it is for you. But God knows what it takes. He says, preacher, you blow the trumpet. What's the purpose of blowing the trumpet? To get the attention. He says, you sound the alarm. And he says, and then he tells us the purpose about it right here. He says, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Sometimes we get a little bit comfortable in our life, do we not? We get a little bit comfortable in our course. And sometimes we need something to sort of shake us up. And what he's saying right here is that God's word can do it or God can bring about 
chastisement upon us to get our attention. Now look at what he says right here. It's not to say that every calamity that we experience in life is the result of a judgment of God. I would say that, uh, that, that underneath oftentimes uh, sin is the issue. But he says right here, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord cometh and it is nigh at hand. And he says, and here it is. He says, hold on. He says, there's going to be some things that are going to be changing. And he says, here it is. A day of darkness and of gloominess. A day of clouds and of thick darkness. As morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and strong. There hath never been ever the like. Neither shall there be any more after it. Even after many generations. And what God was about to do right here. Was to cause a plague of locusts locusts to come upon the land. In a in a tremendous number and their purpose was to go through and destroy everything that were was in their sight. The trees, the grass, the fruit, the vines, everything was going to be bare because of the judgment of God upon the land. Now, let's go over to Hosea and let's look at what Hosea says right here about it. Here in chapter 4 of Hosea uh, chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. The sound of the trumpet and the sound of the alarm is to get the Lord's people to hear the word of the Lord. And he says right here, hear the word of the Lord. Because he says, the Lord hath a controversy. Now, I don't want to have a controversy with you. I don't want to have one with Brother Danny or Brother Mark or Brother Cook or with my mother or my father or anybody else. I don't want to have a controversy with anybody. But I tell you one thing, I sure don't want to have a controversy with the Lord. And I don't want you to have a controversy with the Lord. Because I want to tell you, there's no controversy at hand. The Lord is the one in charge and the Lord will get our attention. But he says right here, the Lord has a controversy with the land. Now, let's look and see. I thought this described 1992, but let's see if it describes now 2020. Some of you weren't even born in 1992. Most of you were, but some of you weren't. He says the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because he says, because there's no truth. Do you know about the only place I know that you can find truth is what Brother Danny was pointing us toward while ago, the Lord's house. Now, there may be a few other places that you can find truth. You ought to be able to find it in your home. But I tell you what, there's not many directions you can look and find truth, real truth. We're to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. He says, because number one, there's no truth. Number two, he says, in the land, there's no mercy. In the land, there's no knowledge of God in the land. Wonder what happened way back in the 60s. They wanted to take the knowledge of God out of the land. I remember way back when you could start your, uh, your, your class off uh, uh, every day of the week in a public school in, in citing either the Ten Commandments or verses or having prayer. Uh, saying the Pledge of Allegiance and all of those things. And slowly and slowly and steadily, those things have been taken out of even the public schools. What is it saying right here? 
Because there's no knowledge of God in the land. He says, I've got a controversy with that. Lord's got a problem with it. If the Lord has a problem with it, don't you think we ought to have a problem with it? He says, and then if that's not enough, he says, by swearing and by lying and by killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood. Therefore shall the land mourn and everyone that dwell in shall languish and the beast of the field and the fowls of the air, even the fishes of the sea shall also be taken away. He basically says, he said, I've got a problem with the land. Now, I'll tell you, I just want to toss this out right here. I had the privilege years ago, and it's a great blessing to travel out of the country to go to the Philippines. It was a wonderful experience. I met a lot of wonderful folks, and I was thankful for the opportunity to be there. But I'll tell you what, one of the things that resulted out of it is it made me really, really, really thankful that I live in the United States of America. Made me real thankful for that. I was real happy when I was able to get back home. I remember going into a McDonald's over there and you have folks that are standing there with machine guns. You don't know if they're for you or against you. I was glad to see a McDonald's, but that took a little bit of the zeal away when you see that. I remember we went on a two-hour van ride. There were about 15 of us, all church folks, going to a little church out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, everything's out in the middle of nowhere there. And, and we get stopped by a roadblock and you've got folks with machine guns on both sides. And, and the minister said, I'll take care of this. Well, I didn't know if they were for us or against us. I know at least right here that I can call the police and, and, and I feel pretty sure that they're for me. I feel that they're, they're, gonna, they're, they're, they're on my side. I, I, I didn't have a lot of the assurances that I felt like I have here in the United States. And I was never so happy to get back to the United States of America. I am very, very, very thankful to live here and I'm not signing up to go anywhere else. I grew up in West Texas. We used to travel to, we referred to it as Old Mexico. War is. I've been there. I, uh, we ventured down further. My father lived there for a while in, in, in Old Mexico. I have zero desire to live there. None whatsoever. Elder Elder Donnie Hobbywox had a church down there and and basically was was run out of the area. He had threats on his life, upon his family, upon his children, and the ministry that he had there, he was run out of the area around Juarez, Mexico. I have no desire. I am super thankful to live in the United States of America. Even with all of our challenges. But what do you think that God is thinking when He looks at this land today? When we've removed God, we've removed the Ten Commandments, we've removed God out of schools, we've removed God out of the families. What do you think God thinks about it? Do you think He's pleased with it? Or does he have a controversy with the inhabitants of the land? He says, I'm just going to summarize and paraphrase the majority of it here. 
But he says, if, if I have a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, then if there's not change, like you were mentioning, or turning, or repentance, he says, then I'm going to bring about judgment upon the land. Is it likely that what we're experiencing is because God has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land? Surely he's not pleased with it. Well, I want to tell you, I always like the rest of the story better than the first part. I was a fan of Paul Harvey. He's with the Lord now. But I sure like he always told you the rest of the story. He says, I've got a problem with the inhabitants of the land. I am going to exercise judgment upon the land. He says, in fact, in verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of God. I will also forget thy children. He continues on down and talks about the iniquities that are within the land. He says, Israel slideth as a backsliding heifer. He says, Ephraim is joined to his idols. And then he says, he just simply says, he's joined to his idols. And he simply says, let him alone. That's to me one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. When God would actually just turn us over to ourself. See, God doesn't have to help us at all in sinning. Not a bit. We do that completely ourselves, without the assistance of God whatsoever. Every, every, every part of God hates and abhors sin. There's not... I, I cannot, in my mind or in the Scriptures, connect any dots between sin and God. God hates sin. If we're left to ourselves, we're going to always go in that direction. It's only because of His grace that He restrains us and pulls us to Himself. But if left alone, and right here He says, Ephraim is joined unto his idols. He says, let him alone. To me, that's a terrible judgment for an individual if God gets to that point that he says, let him alone. Now, I'm real, real thankful. We're talking about right here, in, in my understanding of it, we're talking about how that God deals with his people while we're living right here. Not talking about God annihilating us from heaven. If you're bound for heaven, you're saved by God's grace and you're going to arrive in heaven. But if you mess up here, you're going to be chastised here. You are. But here's, here's what he says in Joel that gives us a little bit of encouragement. Verse 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart. Now this is just in line with what Brother Danny emphasized. He says, turn ye even to me, verse 12 of chapter 2, even with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. Now, he, he, he tells us what the problem is. He addresses the problem, but he also gives us the solution. 
And keep in mind, this message is to the Lord's people in His churches. We're not going to have the impact of changing the whole world. We're not. But He addresses it one-on-one, -on -one, but I will tell you how we can have a tremendous impact. He says, Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. And he says, And rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. He says, and that's the whole purpose. The whole purpose of God bringing about chastisement on us, whether it's in our churches, whether it's in our country, whether it's in our families, is to bring about change. Here's what he says. Therefore now saith the Lord, turn ye even unto me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. He says, and rend your hearts and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. He says, for he is gracious and merciful. He sloweth, he's, he's, uh, he, he's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. And he says, Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him? Then he goes on down to say, Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and the Lord pity for his people. What's our hope? What is our hope? What's our hope that things can be different in the land in which we live? What's our hope that once again we can see churches prosper? What's our hope that we can see families flourishing and rejoicing in the Lord? What is our hope? Our hope's not in ourselves. Our hope is certainly not in the circumstances that are going on around us. Our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is that God will turn and leave a blessing. Our hope is that God is gracious. Our hope is that God is merciful. Our hope is that God is slow to anger. Our hope is and our experience is that God is a God of great kindness. Don't you believe that if he wasn't, we would have already been destroyed if God was not a God of hope and of kindness and slow to anger? He says he's of great kindness. He says, turn ye with all your heart and with weeping and fasting and mourning. Now, in uh, Matthew chapter 17, there's a, a good lesson here that was given to the disciples that is really... Good for us to remember as well. Matthew chapter 17, we'll conclude with this. It says, um, 
they brought a man, a son, that had his son that was vexed with the sore spirit, verse uh, seven, chapter 17, verse 15. And he said, Lord, have mercy upon my son, for he's a lunatic. He was, didn't have his right mind. He was, he was tormented. He was vexed with ungodly spirit. He was sore vexed. He says he falleth into the fire and oftentimes into the water. And he says, I brought him to the disciples and they couldn't cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed from him. And the child was cured that very hour. I expect if you had a child that was experiencing that, you would pursue every course of action that you possibly could. But there's a lesson in it right here that's huge for all of us. And Jesus said unto them, He says, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if ye have faith the grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. And he says, howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. In Matthew chapter 6, it talks about three things right there that we're to do in the, in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 6, it talks about giving of alms. It talks about prayer. And it also talks about fasting. That's a form of worship that brings us closer to God. It does not manipulate God. It oftentimes changes us. But it does give audience to God. I'm I'm going to paraphrase it in Stephen Boyd's terms. It makes God know that when we come to him with a problem, with a trial, that if we go to God in prayer and fasting, that we mean business as much as we can. As much as is within us. And he says right here, To the father of the child and to the disciples. He said this cometh but by nothing but prayer and fasting. Fasting. This is in the New Testament. Some folks say, well, I thought fasting was only in the Old Testament. Absolutely not. We can worship God and are encouraged to worship God through prayer and fasting. Now I'm going to just summarize it for just a minute. I don't know if I can put it in the right words, but I'll try. We have an opportunity and an obligation. At least a week from Tuesday, I believe it is to get out and vote. We do. That's not what this whole sermon's about, but this is this could be applied as well. My fifth grade teacher Also taught my father in the fifth grade. She taught until she was about 90 years old. But I I don't remember much of what she said, but I remember one thing that she said. She said, you have an obligation and you have a right when you reach voting age to get out and vote. And she said, if you don't vote... Don't you complain about the course that's going on. You don't have any opportunity to exercise an audience. 
if you don't get out and exercise the right that has been granted to you to vote. Now, we are accountable to God on how we vote. Each one of us ought to be praying to God to give us wisdom and direction on when we cast that vote. Now, you might be thinking, and I'm saying this because I've thought it. My vote doesn't count. It's not ever going to be missed. It's not going to be noticed. It's not going to make a difference. So whether I go or not doesn't really matter. Let me tell you how you can do something in addition to voting. Now, I believe that we're to take God's word and the principles that are taught in God's word. And we're to look for those that best represent the principles that are taught in God's word. My grandparents grew up in the Depression and they almost starved to death back in 1928, 29 and 1930. And they looked at President Roosevelt as a savior. And I mean, he put food on the table for them. He allowed them to have jobs. And from that point on, they didn't even consider anything but what President Roosevelt did for them, in their opinion, back in 1932. I believe we are accountable to God to look at God's word and to compare There is certainly not any perfect candidate. Believe me, I wouldn't sign up for the job. I wouldn't. No way. You might think my one little vote. John, you might think your one vote might not make a difference. But I want to tell you what you can do that will make a difference. We're taught that if there's a problem in our land, he calls for repentance. We can do that. But Jesus Christ himself said... If we go before Him in prayer and fasting. Now, I don't want to discount your opportunity to vote. I believe you ought to. And I want to encourage you. And I honestly, I kind of hope I see you at the poll. I do. I'd like to see a familiar face. But I'll tell you what. You want to know how you really make a change? You make a change because you know the person that's in charge. You know the one that doesn't just have a little bit of power. You know the one that has all power. You know the one that's over all the enemies that want to give you a really hard time. You know the one that is able to make a difference. We may not feel like in our little world that it matters. But from what Jesus Christ said right here, it may look like a mountain to you. But he says, if you have faith and you enter into it in prayer and fasting, he says, the results are that you can move a mountain and you can, when that happens, You can just sit back in awe and say, that was a God thing. You can. You can say, I know it didn't look like it's going to work out. I didn't see how it could work out. I've had situations in, in my family. I've had situations at work. I've had situations at church that I couldn't see. I couldn't see a way through. 
And yet God made a way. You know a verse that I just rejoiced in this morning and I'll just share it with you. You can remember this one verse if nothing else. Psalm 118. David said, This is the day that the Lord hath made. Well, He made today. He made yesterday. He made tomorrow. He made election day. He says, This is the day that the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. You know what? I'm going to choose to rejoice and be glad in it. David did. And he sure didn't have everything going his way a lot of times. And most of the time, it's because he brought it on himself. It was. Well, you have the opportunity to express yourself by your one little vote. And I hope you do. But I want to call you to do something that's far greater than that one little vote. I want you to vote. I hope to see you there. I hope you're in the same line I'm in. (laughs) But even if you're not, I want you to go to the Lord in prayer and fasting and you beg God to intervene. And then when He does, you just stand back in awe and give Him the glory and praise and say, that was a God thing. That was a God thing. I'm thankful that no matter what the outcomes are, I'm thankful to know that God's in charge. And I'm thankful to know that the church of Jesus Christ, no matter who's in office, can shine as a bright light. We don't know the mind of God. God may allow His judgment to come upon the land. But God has promised to be with us. And God can allow the church of Jesus Christ to shine even brighter in the midst of affliction. I don't wish it upon us. It says about the Israelites in Exodus, the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and grew. Sometimes that's when we experience the closest fellowship with the Lord. It's when we have the most difficult seasons around us. Go vote. But even if you're not able to do that, you go to the Lord in prayer and fasting and beg God to lead and heal our land. We're in troubled times. You don't have to look far to see that. But we do know the one. We know the great physician. And He's in the business of healing. And that's the one that we lean on. And that's the one we go to. May God bless you.